Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. I am recording this episode on the road. I'm on my speaking tour across the United States, and if you live on the East Coast, I might be somewhere near you soon. Uh, so please check out my webpage, blakebowles.com, to see if you can come to one of my talks. And right now I'm in the living room of two graduate students at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, who are my couch surfing hosts. I'm staying with friends and family members and sometimes couch surfing while going across the country. And so the audio is going to sound a little bit different on today's episode. Uh, and the episode is also unique because I did a live interview with Pat Montgomery, who's one of these people that I've heard about for a long time, and I finally got the honor to meet here in person in Michigan. And Pat's daughter, Chandra, who is the current executive director of the Clonlara School, which is this incredible program that does have a physical campus here in Ann Arbor, but they also they got more famous for doing their home-based education program, which is essentially a support program done at a distance for families in the United States and increasingly abroad. They work with over 50 countries now. Um, to help families set up homeschooling and especially do something that looks more like unschooling and still provide them with a, an accredited, crucially, an accredited high school diploma uh, whenever they decide they want to stop doing homeschooling, which makes it really straightforward to apply to four-year colleges and any other institution that wants to see um, a more legitimate-looking diploma and transcript. So Clonlara is an awesome institution, and Pat and Chandra were really incredible guests. There are some great stories in this episode. Uh, listen all the way to the end. Without further ado, here's Pat and Chandra. I'm here at Clonlara headquarters with Pat and Chandra Montgomery. Pat, your title now is? Founder. Founder. Of Clonlara. Director Emerita. <laughs> <laughs> and Chandra, yours? Executive Director. And we're going to talk about Clonlara, which has been around the homeschooling scene for a long, long time. And when I got into this, it was one of the first names that I read about, mostly about the home-based education program, which was making accredited transcripts for homeschoolers available to anyone in the United States and even uh, outside of the United States. Um, so I think we should start with the very beginning, though, which is you, Pat. Did Clonlara just come out of you, divine inspiration, like fully formed? You knew you wanted to do this from day one? I knew that I didn't want to send my children to conventional schools. I had taught in conventional schools. I was a Roman Catholic nun in a teaching order. And so... I became a teacher by default, um, and I had taught for 14 years before departing the order and teaching in public schools. So I had all the sides of the desk, and in, in a lot of different settings, and I knew that for the most part, children were not the focus of any of those systems. In fact, they were the, the afterthought. And so I thought, that's wrong. The children should be the actors, the ones who call the shots. We should be paying much more attention to their needs and their growth and their personalities and, 
and their abilities and strengths and so on. So I knew that I wasn't going to abandon my children, but I didn't know what that meant. And so when my husband and I went shopping for schools, when they were still three and four years, two and three years of age, uh, we didn't find any, so we said, we're just going to have to start one. And then that became the whole the thing. That's what we did. And you were living here in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Ann Arbor, Michigan, a mile from where we're sitting today. <laughs> and what, what year was this when this you were looking for schools? 63 when I started climbing. So that's right before the heyday of the alternative 19, school sorry, movement. Sorry, 1967. Oh, even, even better, even closer. Is when we got married. Okay. And 1967 is when we started the schools four years later. Okay. So you said you couldn't find anything locally. What was the, the more national scene in the United States for alternative education at that moment? At that moment, I had no clue uh-huh. because... I was just thinking, nothing exists the way I want it, so I'm going to have to create it. Mm -hmm. So it never occurred to me that there were other people doing the same thing Mm -hmm. and had done the same thing since the time of Socrates, actually, see, that none of that was in my my, uh, consciousness at that time. It only came later. And was this really born out of the need to provide something for your own kids? That's yes, absolutely. And anyone else who would want. I wasn't interested in being isolated. Mm-hmm. I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. I was used to schools. I knew schools. And so it, it was the most natural thing to say, I'm going to start a school. Mm-hmm. So I did. Was homeschooling an option at that point for your family? There was no such coined term at that time. Really? Even though there was, because that's the way people learned from day one. You see, from the cavemen times, (laughs) you always learned by being home, you didn't have institutions to go to. And in the Middle Ages, the only ones who went to those institutions were wealthy people and people of a religious bent. So, and and men, boys, never girls, or seldom. And so, all through the ages, um, that that ensued. It was only now that I'm living... The funniest part at that time for me was, and as I look back, that there was no history. There was no what's going on in the world, what's going on elsewhere. There was a, a kind of a tunnel vision of what the need is here and what I have to do to fill it. It was much, much later, I would say maybe um, 10, 12 years later, that I realized, oh, other people are doing this too, imagine that. <laughs> so, in the later 70s? Uh, yes, in fact, it was in the 80s that Alternative Schools Network in Chicago started having alternative workshops for the country and and for the world. I mean, anybody could come. And people came from Mexico, Canada, and so on. Mm-hmm. So it was international. And it was there that I found these people mm-hmm. who had done what I did, so to speak. Although it was many different flavors, mm-hmm. it was not one size fits all mm-hmm. by any stretch. It still isn't today, of course. 
So what did the very first Clomara iteration look like? How many kids? How it was the structure? eight children, mm -hmm. and they were three and four years of age. My own two were part of the eight, so there was six non-family members. It was in a house on this property where we sit now, one house like the other houses on the street that you saw here, a motley arrangement. Uh, it was a township, it wasn't part of the city at the time. In fact, the road was not paved, it was a dirt wow. road. Wow. Yeah, there, there were wells, not city water at the time. And so that, that house with those eight was it. And Chandra, you were one of these eight. I was. I always claimed being first student. She was. Because I figured I was the oldest, so <laughs> I don't really know who was in the door first. But <laughs> What's your earliest memory from Clone Laura here? Um, I do remember the little house. We eventually grew to be into two different houses and portable units in the middle before this building was built. And I do remember running in and out of the little white house. Um, I think my earliest memory is just sort of being able to be wherever I wanted. So mm. we could be inside, we could be outside, we could be in the back by the trees, we could be in the sandbox. There was never, an, this memory is colored now by a lifetime of understanding the way the normal world works or the normal school world works. But there was never a time when we sort of had to be in any one place. Mm -hmm. You know, there was lunchtime and we congregated in the You're same hungry. place. We were yes. hungry. There was something very interesting going on, so we congregated in the same place. But there was never a time when you couldn't sort of just do what you were moved to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, a real gift of childhood to have had that. So from the beginning, Clonlara sounds like it was essentially a free school. or Decidedly. You know, operated on the principle of consent. Um, were you a democratic free school? We never used that word, mm -hmm. but I always felt that we were. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone had a say. I mean, the say of a three-year-old was equal to my say uh, when it came to things like going on field trips, where we would go, why we would go, how we would be while we were there, and so on and so on. Who would be hired, who would probably stay and not stay um, as, as a staff member as time went on, because I was the only staff member at the beginning. Until there were more than 10 children, I didn't need to have anyone else. But then when we started going on field trips, I wanted for safety's sake, and for those who didn't want to go, to have someone stay back. That makes sense. So Very functional. It, it, it was all functional. Yeah. yeah. So when did Clonlara start turning into something bigger than the, the one-room schoolhouse? What, what was its first level up? Well, we were hoping to add an age a year. And that's how I figured I would get my feet wet with children below the school age. The licensing from the state of Michigan for that grouping comes from came from the Department of Social Services at the time. And so I had to apply and do the paperwork and follow those regulations and abide by those examinations periodically. And that got me ready to move into the Department of Education, which happens when children are six years of age in Michigan. And when they are, they can no longer be 
convened in a frame dwelling, and that was a frame dwelling, that house. That was made of wood. And what they have to be in then is 45-minute fireproof. And that would mean steel, Quonset, um, so... Heavy-duty buildings. Heavy-duty building, building that looks institutional, more or less. And so that's when, uh, first of all, when we grew too big for that one house, which comfortably held 12, then we had to add another house. And there was a house next door, which we did convince the owner that we would move into. And fortunately for us, the owner owned both those houses plus all the lots. There are five lots. And the two in between those houses were empty lots, and the one on the other side was an empty lot. And so we moved to the second house. Then when we came to the time that Chandra would be six years of age, we could no longer be in either of those two frame houses. So we got a temporary classroom unit called Temporary. It's, uh, we called it a tin can because it was made (laughs) out of aluminum. And it was what you see at many schools that have need for additional classrooms. This one came from um, Washtenaw Community College. They had extra ones and they were moving into a, a real building so they didn't need these anymore. And we got them at really a reduced rate. Everything for us had to be at a reduced rate. Nothing funded the school except Jim's labors, my husband's labors, at the University of Michigan on faculty as a foreign student advisor. And the apples we could sell at the football games and any, anything we could beg, borrow, or steal. We didn't steal And <laughs> steal. Um, well, we won't get into that. Okay. Um, Where did the apples come from? We, we, we took them from the orchard, from Wired's <laughs> orchard. So in that sense, they were the steel because they were the ones that fell from the trees. They're called windfall. Yeah, they were going to rot. They were going to rot, and we could get them okay. if we would come and take them. So that's where we got the, the best-looking ones and sold them at the football games. And For a nickel. For a nickel. Yeah, for a nickel. <laughs> All and, labor. And, and this was the tuition that funded Clamara School. In the and beginning. then the tuition from the kids could pay, that did pay, that's what funded the school. Mm-hmm. And it, to this day, that we are still in that same ballpark. And they're still selling We're not apples selling apples at, apples at the football game okay. anymore. But everything else is the same. When did homeschooling enter the picture? Well, it was about... Uh, that was 1967 that the campus school started. Mm-hmm. Six years later, we added, or three years later, we added elementary school. And we were into maybe four years of elementary school when we had a family visit from the other side of the state, four, three hours drive. And they visited for a whole day. and. At the end, I had time to speak with them when uh, the, cl- the children had gone home. And I asked them, are you going to move here? No, we're not. Well, you know, what did you spend all the day? It, it was quiz- I was quizzical about what was going on. And they said, we would like to keep our son home and have you help us. 
What? So that was just the most unusual request of many that I got. And so I asked, what would you need? Well, we've tried to get textbooks and other materials and the textbook companies won't sell to just parents. So, um, because, you know, you can't give them the answer copies. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> really? Oh, oh, really? Absolutely. That was wow. the mentality. In the 70s. Uh, yeah, of the textbook companies. Can you believe this? Yeah, Houghton Mifflin and all those rascals. <laughs> and so, um, could you help us with that? Could you help us assess, you know, is he progressing well enough? Could we come and visit and he could have buddies that he calls his own and a name of a place that is his own even though it's only you know, a couple times a year that we would be here and so on and I thought this is outlandish <laughs> and yet it seemed to me as I waited after about five minutes of being in that thought process that it was the same thing I did I had no understanding of what it was to start a school. I taught in schools, Catholic, public, and a mix in between, but I never started one. I got the help I needed, where I needed it, from people who had printed things and, and sold their books, or a few and far between they were, mind you, this, but at that time. But, um, but I got help. I got help from the man who owned the property, letting us have the houses for no money down. And based on monthly payments, that's not the way you sell houses. It may be the way you rent them, but we also wanted to buy, you see. And so that seemed to me what I had done. So what was I to stand there and say to her, I was able to do this, but you cannot. Mm. You know, you cannot start a homeschool, or whatever you're going to call it. We did not call it that, even though that's what it was, because the words never came together. It was just, and it wasn't long after that that I got a call from the Department of Education in Lansing. Now her husband golfed every Wednesday with the superintendent of public instruction <laughs> uh, schools over in their district in St. Joseph, Michigan. And so, of course, he said, where's the boy? What school does the boy go to? <clears throat> well, he doesn't go to school. Well, you can imagine the furor that started in school land and that word got to the department that there was this place in Ann Arbor that was doing this contraband thing. And so I got a call from the department. Paul Turnbull, um, the gentleman, said, what are you doing? You have somebody enrolled who doesn't attend. And I said, that's right. Well, that, you have to have people attend the school. You can't be enrolled in the school. I said, well, then we'll disenroll them. But we'll still serve them. They can still do what they're doing. You know, we could close Clonlara for this. Well, those were fighting words. I mean, I, we did not get into this, Mr. Turnbull, to have somebody of your ilk flip a switch and say you're closed. No way. 
So I said, I'm sure you would like to do that, Mr. Turnbull. With a smile on my face, but I wasn't smiling. I left that day from this built this the building I was in, one of the houses, and went right to the school of it, um, the law school at the University of Michigan, and asked to see Michigan law on schools. And there I found the trove of the whole thing. Hmm. So I looked for everything. I looked for children not attending school. I looked for the compulsory education. Weeks went by, and I was doing research every single day after school on this. And I found, to my absolute delight, that there was a phrase, home school, and that it was brought into play in 1925. Wow. In, in the, the state, state of Michigan. Yes. And in 1954, the Attorney General was asked, is it permissible some district somewhere in the state had this in one of their families. And is this permissible? And the answer from the Attorney General, which is law, as far as anybody's concerned, was, yes it is, on the condition that they have the same program as the public school. Now what does that mean, you see? So that was the only thing that was... That was it, that was the condition. That was it. Very nebulous. Yeah. And it was the same condition that private schools operated under. A private school, St. Francis School, Clonara School, has to have a program similar to the public schools, and they have to have state-certified teachers. So, I thought to myself, hmm, we have one state-certified teacher at Clonara School at this moment. We had 46 students. Of those 46 students, 29 were school age, above six years of age. So knowing that, and then I had to put together, what is the responsibility of an elementary school teacher in the public schools? Well, he, she could have 35, 36 children in a classroom. I thought, bingo, I'm home free. <laughs> I don't have to worry. As long as I have... So I had to be sure I had all my ducks in a row and that everything at Colorado was the way it ought to be. And then I called the Department of Education and said, I would like to come up and talk to you. First of all, Mr. Turnbull, but also the superintendent of public schools. And Mr. Turnbull said to me, I hope you're not thinking of starting a program. And I thought, what a capital idea! <laughs> That is fantastic. Here we are selling apples in a football game. We could be charging. Oh, Mr. Purple. So I took then to the meeting a week later a mock-up of a brochure for the pro program we did. The, the home-based education program? Yeah. That was it. That was 1979. 1978 is when we started the home-based education program. Thanks. And what did they have to say about this? They said it was illegal. I said, under what law? Well, they, they had no idea. I said, look under. So I gave them all the, the, the places, the, the verses, the texts. I gave them everything. 
and said, look there and you'll find it. And we're fine. So they didn't worry about us from that moment on. We were fine. But the parents of the homeschoolers got great grief from the public schools locally. And it lasted for years. They were taken to jail. The jail. jail. Parents, actual parents, were taken to jail, jail for homeschooling. Yes. In the late 70s. A man who was a farmer in Coldwater, Michigan, in the late mid to late 70s, whose livelihood depended on getting the crops in the field, in April was taken to jail and sat there for three weeks. The best time, end of April, beginning of May, that he had to get that that field done. And this was for resisting the order to this send his kids to school? This was he was educating his seven-year-old daughter at home. This was the late 70s? Yes. Yes. Was this unique in Michigan? Was Michigan no, a particularly was tough stop Sorry. place to do this? No. Wow. Ohio had this. New York had this. Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. The East states and some of the mid-states were the worst. Now, the, the far west states, when they looked at this situation, they immediately, and I mean they here are the public school personnel, they said, we're not going to take families to court. We're not going to accuse families of truancy the way they're doing in the East. We're going to find a way to get the money from these parents. We'll say they're enrolled in our schools, and then we'll still get the money. And we'll enroll them by having... So they figured out a whole way, you see. That's the way Oregon, Washington, California, that's the way they did it. There were other states who didn't give two shakes whether somebody homeschooled or didn't. They didn't care. The public schools also didn't care. Maybe they didn't get the funding the way the state of Michigan and others nearby get the funding based on the headcount of kids in their schools on two different dates of the year, hmm. October and February. So on count day. So... That riled the, the school systems, and they took people to jail and court. And, yeah. I have a book in front of me that you wrote and was published in 2017, The School That's Inside of You. I assume many of these stories in much more detail can be found in this book. Absolutely. Okay. The School That's Inside You. Go get the Pat Montgomery story. I wish I had read this before I showed up here for this interview. Alas. Um, let's fast forward a little bit to the large case that you were involved in, Clum Lara versus Michigan State Board of Education, which was 1985, but it lasted for a long time. Yes, there was appeals. it lasted until 1993 when the final appeal uh, was heard by the Supreme Court. So it went from the circuit court level, and we, we prevailed. And then the state uh, countered and took it to the Court of Appeals. It's our tax monies at work. And the Court of Appeals sided again with us. So the State Board of Education took it to the Supreme Court of Michigan. And the Supreme Court sided with us also. So we won on every level. 
Um, our accusation against the state was that bureaucrats, the, the school people, are setting up laws as though they have the power and they do not. Only the legislature has the law to act in this regard, and the bureaucrats, the paper shufflers, have to only in, do what the law says. And the law is clearly on our side and on the side of homeschoolers. Was there a specific incident that started this? Well, the repeat thing, incidents? The, in addition to taking people to court, in addition to most of my time at that, in that, those years, was putting out these fires started mm. by the, depart- the, the local department. So I went to the department and I said, call the dogs off. Tell the people that are in these local areas not to be doing this. We have no control over the local areas. I said, I beg your pardon. My check when I was in your public schools was countersigned by your uh, superintendent of public instruction. So you have no power? Baloney. So, but they weren't listening. I went to a meeting. It was a meeting about 12 people who were advocates of homeschooling, mostly religious groups, heads of religious groups, and myself in a room with the school superintendent, whose name was Phil Brunkel, and his second-in-command, James Phelps. And we were talking to them about the latest law that... They didn't call it that. They called it regulations. What's the difference? For the families receiving these packages, these letters in the mail, this was law. We were talking about their latest, and their latest said you have to have a teacher inside your home every day. A state-certified teacher? Yes, state-certified. Physically in your home, if you have a homeschool? Yes. So I said, what does the teacher have to do? Well, what do teachers do? He said, well, if you don't know, and you can't list for me. What constitutes a teacher? What constitutes being in there? what, What activities? If you can't tell us that, if these aren't listed for these families, what justice is there? Then a little further, after more discussion ensued, there was another part of the regulation that said, for 180 days. Well, I happen to know from the law that a public school district in the state of Michigan had been denied its payments for the whole year because it didn't have school for 180 days. And when I studied that law, it was because of the money that is parceled out for 180 days that that school district gets from the state. And I thought, hold on here, folks. Private schools and home schools don't get money from the state. So this day thing has nothing to do with Clonlara school itself, or with these families, each individual one. 
So why are we talking 180 days here? So I said, finally, before the meeting ended, could you please tell us whether that 180 days is, you know, written in stone according to these regulations. The two men looked at each other and looked at me and the rest of the group and said, we're not telling you. I could not. All the way home, I don't know how I even got home driving, because all the way home I was so livid to have an attitude of that kind. Is it any wonder that our children have the lives they do in those schools? That the heads would feel that they could be so cavalier with the lives of human beings that they could allow them to sit in jail when they should be planting the fields. This is unbelievable. So when I got home and told Jim this, he said, there's only one thing that these people understand. If you hit them in that pocketbook, and that's why they're angry, because homeschoolers are hitting them in their pocketbook. He said, these individual people calling the shots and writing these regulations, they will not get that message. It is not their pocketbook. So I thought, then we'll file suit. And we'll name them as individuals. And they will feel the crunch. So the next day we filed suit. I, I have to ask you, did you have any background in law? You know, you were looking up all these regulations. You were filing suit against the government. Yeah. Did you have a background doing anything like this beforehand? No. Or was this all born out of necessity? This was all came from those that family that visited me that day. This all came from the aftermath of that. And I got a letter from the um, Lawyers Association of Michigan. And it said, it has come to our attention that you are practicing law without oh a license. Gosh. Oh my in this gosh, state. are you kidding me? We are prepared to take action. And I answered the letter and I said, like Abraham Lincoln, I have read and I can read the law. If that is against if that's practicing law without a license, I'm guilty. I give advice to more lawyers who are calling about homeschooling because they never heard of it, and they have families coming to them. The families are paying hefty prices for these lawyers. They are getting their advice from me. I gave advice to the people at the Department of Education who had no knowledge that there were laws set up on their books that allowed for all that we are doing here. If that is practicing law without a license, then I'm guilty. Fire away. Finally, I don't charge a single penny mm -hmm. for any of the advice I give, nor do parents feel that they are under any burden to adhere to it, to follow it. If that is practicing law without a license, then count me.
Were you aware of this while it was going on, Chandra? I was blissfully unaware. <laughs> so, um, when all this was happening, I was in college. And I wasn't very far. I was at the University of Michigan. Um, but I felt so obligated to spend so much time on my studies that uh, I left her to her own devices. To fight the state. To fight the state. Yeah, to take no on the monsters. Yeah. She's... She's a St. George, you know, she's always looking for a dragon. <laughs> so while this is dragging on, the home-based education program is still happening. And, yes? No, uh, it, it has taken different turns, different twists. The most that I think it happens now had, in these latter years, had to do with admissions to colleges. The admissions officers hadn't got the message that this kind of an education is in many ways superior to what any child would get in any institutional school, including Clonlara. <laughs> yes. That not always, but often, it is superior. Otherwise, it is at least equal. At least. And in that last batch, I include people with learned, so-called learning disabilities, so-called special needs, I include all of them. Having them at home one-on-one -on -one is far superior to institutionalizing them. So that's, that and divorce, those the, the admissions officers and divorce are the two things that eat away now at um, homeschooling uh, pillars and call us to court every now and again. Yeah, because one uh, divorcing partner sees, oh, here's how I can get at the partner. I can say you can't homeschool. Mm -hmm. And so we have to go and testify often. In, in that regard. But essentially, since 1979, you have been providing transcripts and accredited transcripts and high school diplomas for people who finished the home-based education program, which is now called the off-campus program. And there really hasn't been a, a break in that. You've been doing that continuously? Yeah. Yes. And I know that that has enabled people from all across the U.S. and in other parts of the world to like make the choice to homeschool yes. because you still have that seal of accreditation, which feels very safe. Um, how often have you had the conversation with families where they say, you know, do we need you in order for our kids to be successful? Do you ever have to advocate against yourself and say, actually, you can just homeschool and you don't really need an accredited transcript. It might help with some things. I plead guilty. To that. <laughs> I'm glad she did. <laughs> yeah, because I, I used to do that all the time. But I would say that if, however, on the other hand, you want someone else to do this hard work for you, then you want to be with us. Mm -hmm. If you want to support people who have supported you, even before you decided to homeschool, who went and did the down and dirty and didn't charge anything extra to anybody for doing it, stupidly, 
Um, I didn't add that part because I didn't think that part until much, much later when I retired and realized that other people will not step into a job that has no salary attached to it, called the director of a school. That that isn't the way things are done in real business. And so I'm guilty of doing the first, but I am also um, supportive of myself in saying that I did give them some realistic um, things to look at like that, too. Mm -hmm. Chandra, you are now the director. Yes. You stepped into this role. I did. Do you get paid? I do get paid. Wow, that's I an upgrade. I made sure that happened. That is an upgrade. Yes, wow. we're moving right along. <laughs> um, there's a few other things I want to circle back to, Pat, but uh, Chandra, when did you step into the helm? Uh, 2005. 2000, in 2005, um, it was a little earlier, it was a little sudden. Um, not because we, of those of us uh, in the organization, didn't know it was coming. Um, it must have been a couple of years before that, that mom put together a transition team and announced that she wouldn't be director forever. She did not say, in two years I will retire and we have to get ready for that. She said, but let's discuss um, what happens to founder organizations, entrepreneurial organizations. I don't know if you can call a nonprofit an entrepreneurial you know, organization. With a strong, charismatic leader. With a strong, charismatic leader who works for free and cares nothing about the bottom line in terms of finances. So, um, But what happens to any organization when that charismatic founder leaves. And a lot of them just absolutely plots. And she wanted to be sure that that didn't happen. All of us wanted to be sure that that didn't happen, but how do you prevent that? Um, so a number of us, she called together a group of people that represented pretty much every aspect of the organization. and um, Staff, teaching staff, office staff, uh, herself, parents, a homeschool parent, a campus parent. I believe there was a student, student. Um, but it was a very, they, they were, but it was a, an intense and uh, had a long duration. So the students didn't quite make the huge democratic piece of it sure. um, that we would have liked just because it, it went on for years. Yes, two years. And um, I actually was a member of the corporation as a member of the board. And a member of the board. And so I was representing the board in mm -hmm. these meetings. And for the most part, we covered all the operational stuff. And I didn't, um, I didn't have much to do with that. But when it came to what the board does, I remember having done research and standing up in front of everybody and saying, here is what a board does. Here are what corporate officers do in the real world as you know required. And I said, but here at Clonmara, the director... The um, president of the corporation, so the CEO, and the visionary of the corporation, the passion of the corporation, is all together in one person. And I said, and technically, that would not necessarily be true. You'd have a president, you'd have an executive director, mm -hmm. um, and you would have sort of a mission that covered that. And so I described what a president of the organization would do, and sort of everybody in the in the room looked at me and said, well, that's you. You have those skills and you should do that. And I was like, well, I, you know, having written this, I started to think that. And this was maybe late May of, of 2005. 
And I thought, well, you know, maybe but we got another school year. School year's already sort of in place by that time of the year. And we got another school year, so maybe next year I would start that. Well, it must have been June 29th. You know, we were coming up on the 4th of July weekend, and my mom said, can you start on, you know, can you start on Monday? And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> Wait, what were you doing in your life at this moment? I was a mom okay. at that point. Mm-hmm. So I was not working. I definitely wasn't working full-time. Um, but I was bringing my children to school here. Mm-hmm. So I was coming every day. I was actually doing the um, volunteer um, fundraising. I was like sort of fundraising chairperson at, at that time. So spending a lot of time here. Um, and they all just looked at me like, okay, you do it. So we, I actually um, came on Monday, walked in with mom, uh, and she stayed in her office. She went into her office, and I had a little cubicle outside her office. <laughs> and I was the new executive director. And it actually took somebody else probably about four months to finally say, uh, Pat, you know, Chandra just can't be can't take on the sort of work that you want her to take on if she's just in a cubicle outside your office. So we need to move you out. (laughs) And I was so grateful to her because I thought I had been there 20 years outside the office not being able to say, hey, mom, you're out of (laughs) here. No, that's not true. I knew that when you would come in, and I better go back and, and go over some of what you just explained because there was... Um, in the transition team, we did lead for two years, meeting every single month, I think every other week, for an hour and a half each. We had advisors come and speak with us and do workshops for us. We roundly discussed. We just knew each other. And we were staff members from the home base program, staff members from the campus program, st- staff members from, there was another thing we had that was a combination of programs called School Away From Home, staff members from that, parents from all of those. Uh, the, there were 15 people in that room, and uh, sometimes 17 when the students could make it, which they, it was spotty, but they did. And it was they who, when Chandra said, here's what it's done, they said, we're finished. We have our executive director. And so we, uh, and one said that. And then another one chimed in and agreed. And I thought, what, what did we, did we just make? So in the next meeting, we said, did we make a decision? And so then we roundly discussed it, and the upshot of that was, yes, we did. And we're going to put before Chandra, Mm -hmm. would she accept being the executive director? And then we decided, and we did decide as a group, everything was decided as a group, that there would not be one person. There would be a person in charge of the campus school. It wouldn't all be all the same one as it had been. And so we're going to hire somebody for the campus school. And there were some other few things we decided at that time. And that ended our transition team meetings. And that was 
when, whenever you were determining, well, maybe you'd start next year. When I said, well, no, why don't you start now? I was fully aware that I would be leaving the, 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 that room. And I was preparing, but the room was in such utter chaos as it always was. And that it took a little to know which crate am I going to get out the door first, etc., etc. So it wasn't quite as haphazard as you <laughs> say. And I didn't have to be kicked out. Okay, I'm, I'm going to move this along here. I'm gonna, we're going to push forward. I can see there's some differences that won't be resolved in this recording. And Chandra, you stepped into a much different world than the world that your mom stepped into and helped to create. I did. And earlier, I think you said something about having a foot in two worlds. I, I forget what we were talking about exactly, but I feel like I had had sort of a foot in, in two worlds for a long time because I came out of Clamara. I knew no other type of schooling until I was 11 years old. Um, what, what did you do after 11? So um, I went to the to Burns Park School. I went to regular public elementary school from Clonmara. That was a personal choice that eventually mom allowed. Um, there was never a no, you can't do it, but it was, well, in order to go to the school, you go across the street and register because the school was across the street from our home. And one of the reasons I went is because every single kid in our neighborhood passed our house to go to the regular school, and I went to this other school and there were a heck of a lot more people going that way and I just wanted to try it and if it so I guess eventually I said to mom no I know how this works after three years of saying I want to go to that school I said you have to go register me mom <laughs> parents do that and she said, oh, all right so she went across <laughs> and did it so I went to a regular public elementary school after that year I actually went to the public school's attempt to run uh, junior high school, as we called middle school then, uh, an alternative or an open classroom for junior high. And I did that for a year, and it was miserable. I mean, as much as I had been saying, I want to try something else, I don't want to do Clon Lara, I want to see what else is out there, I thought, boy, these people do not have their act together. They had no idea how to run it all. And my mom can do it better than this, you know. Um, but from there, I went to back to the regular public um, junior high school, and then to Catholic high school. Uh, then, then to the University of Michigan. So I've been to sort of, I feel like, all the different kinds of really small schools, alternative schools, public schools, private schools, religious schools, and the, one of the biggest universities in the country. Um, and so I feel like I've had all of the different uh, academic, you know, experiences. Um, and I kind of claim homeschooling, too, because I was schooled by my mother when I was at Palmar. Uh, so I've had my feet in a lot of different worlds. And I think the, the main thing I saw was these worlds are so separate. What she didn't go into when you were asking her, you know, what was, um, what was the scene like, is that there wasn't really a scene, but she started part of the scene. She started the National Coalition of Alternative Community Schools and gathered together these people who, who were running schools similar to this, schools in Pennsylvania, schools in Chicago, New York, Tennessee, and said, we should know each other, we should help each other, get to know each other, share our experiences, and they had a conference every year. Um, and so she put that together, and I spent a lot of time getting to know these people. They were in our home all the time. They were the people we socialized with. Um, and then I knew the people from the regular school world. 
And I thought, these are so two totally different places. You know, if I said I went to Clamara, and people would say, oh, mm, that wacky school. You know, when I went to sixth grade at the public school, the teacher there had said to me at one point, there was a misunderstanding between between me and another student and her and the other student. And the teacher came to me and said, Chandra, I don't know what they do over at that other school you went to. And so I knew there was this prejudice out there towards us. And in the many times that, that mother spoke anywhere and, and was advocating for what Clamara does, what unschooling does is a term we have now, or, you know, democratic schools, all these terms. Self-directed learning. All yeah. these terms that didn't exist. It was just Clamara at the time. What the heck is going on at that school? So I knew there was this prejudice about it. Uh, and I had my feet in that world and my feet in the regular world. And I was very comfortable in both. Um, I enjoyed the traditional schooling that may have been because I had such a solid background, you know, such a solid foundation in what are my responsibilities, what do I have to do, whom do I have to please, and I always thought the answer to that was myself, you know, I only need to please myself that I have completed this project to the best of my ability, and if there was a bar that I could jump over or try to hit, that was a challenge as far as I was concerned, Um, so either I was going to take on the challenge or not, you know, take the B or D in one of my classes and not bother to do any more or really strive for the A and that was all on me. Um, but what I realized is there are very few people in the world that have their feet in both of these worlds. Mm-hmm. And even if they do, they're typically uncomfortable in one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the world of the alternative school can be very zealotous. Um, you know, and I don't necessarily mean that negatively, just reality is there's always a fight there's always somebody in some big institution telling you you're wrong telling you you know you can't possibly treat children that way they can't possibly have as much responsibility as you give them or if you do that you won't have the academics you need and um and so they they have to be come from a defensive place and then you've got the institutional people who are you know just dry and uh certain they're so certain that they have the answers they can't look outside of their box all of this the funny thing is that all of this we hear if you read now edutopia or um any of these sort of i call them modern i don't i don't even call them you know off off mainstream yeah talking about the kind of things that you need to do to give healthy education and they're all what we have been doing for a half a century, and what other schools like us have been doing. But I, I was talking to a woman who spent 35 years in the public school. Yes, just yesterday I was talking to her, and she said, I said, all of these things, though, they're coming up, and, you know, and things will change. And she said, oh, no. She said, all that talk is outside of the public school world. Inside the public school world, it's still unionization. It's still pay issues. It's still... The whole paradigm of testing and being and teachers being um, evaluated by these tests. She said that world is not going to change itself mm-hmm. just because somebody's writing these nice articles outside of it. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a lot of willingness to be in one world or the other, and I think that's where I'm most comfortable. And where I my frustration is that all of these things we're talking about right now, all of the things Kalnar does. It's not new. 
It's not new. Now, maybe there are people in the world who never had the opportunity to hear Pat Montgomery before or to hear of Pat Montgomery before, but the whole paradigm of this kind of education is not new. It started with the cavemen through Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Albert Einstein, me, you know, you, all of us. It's driving me crazy that people's eyes still light up like it would really be possible for me to do this with my children. And then, that's what kills me. That's what I want to take Palmyra and make as much noise as we possibly can. And, and that's what I want to talk about also, because in the U.S., I'm often amazed how much I can take for granted the fact that homeschooling is free and legal. I was born in 1982. When I became aware of homeschooling in 2003, it was just, you know, done. There were alternative schools. There were networks of schools. Um, so that's the world that I walked into. Um, but there are still so many other places in the world where it probably feels a lot more like the 60s or 70s in Michigan. And uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, Pat, about your time in Japan. And uh, I want to be mindful of, of our time together. But Clonlara, this is something that's relatively news to me. Clonlara uh, has been involved in making homeschooling, uh, and maybe I'm, I should be careful with my term, but home-based education uh, available to families in countries where it's ambiguously legal or, or not legal at all. Um, Spain, Germany, uh, yes. India, lots of places. Yes. Um, and also, you've been helping families in places where it is legal, like the UK, but where they might not have extensive support networks. Um, where yes. Did, where did this begin? Because I feel like this is some really incredible work where you are pushing the boundaries for, for people for whom this is a totally foreign concept. So I guess it began more or less in Japan, I know there were a few other, and, and Pat, Mom, can speak to that. Um, but I think, it'd be, you know, like she said, the Japanese allowed her to say homeschooling. And we did start to enroll um, students from Japan and had a very active Japanese program, which is no longer active. Hmm. Um, uh, what is active is Europe. Um, and it, it is very much like Michigan was in the, you know, in the 70s, 80s, nobody's getting put in jail. Uh, some families are getting fined, and there have been a, a couple of issues where children have been taken away um, from families. Often that's a social services issue um, having to do with education, but, you know, they cover it up by saying, well, we're still worried about these other components. It's not just the education. Um but when I say nobody's going to jail, that's probably not 100% true. Nobody we know has been put in jail. They get fined, uh, and they um, contest those fines, and often they lose. They are so, Germans especially, are so law-abiding that they can only take so much of this being told they're doing something wrong before they either leave the country in which case they stay in our program um, because we have everything translated into German, all of our services and all of our um, navigating our system to get the documentation and, and they get to be part of our community too. Um, other countries that we're working in are Portugal, uh, Spain, Hungary, and we have some families in France, maybe 15 families in France. It's not quite its own 
program, but we are delivering our services in French. And so are you doing essentially the same thing you're doing in the United States for these families? Can yes, you... pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, we, we document their learning. We have a whole process for building a relationship with them to be able to guide them through the academic process, the learning process, the creative learning process, because we've been doing that for so long. And we do document that. But we also create community with them. We build relationships with these people. They have somewhere to just come hang their hat and say, I, I do something so different from the neighborhood. or um, Not feel alone. And not feel alone yeah. in what they're doing. Um, and we do community events there. We'll have gatherings, even in Germany, Hungary, um, Spain, have people get together to, you know, to feel like they have a connection to a school. Can you offer an accredited diploma from a Michigan-based school to a family that's based in Spain or Portugal or Germany? We can, and we do. And uh, some of the issues that we're dealing with are whether the local authorities see those documents as equivalent. Mm -hmm. It is their legal documents, their accurate documents, um, but often uh, school districts, school superintendents will say, we know that that student was still here in Hungary when he studied. And so even though it was a foreign school and we recognize foreign schools, we know that student didn't leave. And so they're really struggling to recognize any sort of distance learning. Mm -hmm. You're only in a foreign school if you're outside the if country. If that Hungarian kid went and studied here at Clomara or any other school in the United States. Then it would be an equivalent diploma. And they'd say, you were there, so therefore it's valid. Right. But because it's distance, it's home-based, it's Right. Invalid. Invalid. And we are trying to do everything we possibly can to fight that, to, to fight that dragon. Yeah. And some of the things we're doing are looking into if we have a physical school on the ground in that country, if that, if that physical school is approved, then home-based students would also be umbrellaed by that school. And our, the only thing that really holds us back is money. Is being in being able to do so. That. If I am a, a parent with, let's say, an eleven-year-old who really hates school in Germany, how could I? What would it look like for me to work with Clonlara at this moment? And let's say I'm willing to relocate anywhere within Germany, but I don't want to leave the country. There are areas where families haven't had any problems. The authorities have looked the other way, or even granted them, you know, this exemption to, to homeschool. Let's say you got that and you thought, I want the services of Clonlara and you enrolled with us. Uh, you would be contacted by a German-speaking advisor. Um, again, presuming that is your native tongue. What, you, know, uh, you would be contacted by a German-speaking advisor who would take you through a whole consultation, um, discuss what learning type we're talking about, what your learning goals are. Are they you know, highly academic, very exploratory? What, you know... Uh, what kind of learning style do you think you or the student has? You want to do a lot of hands-on stuff, or is it going to be really bookish? Um, we'll take you through that, and then we will we work with you to design a plan for the year. Uh, and the plan can include a lot of this will happen, you know, as it happens, as it unfolds in a very unschooling way. Um, but we like to know in advance what are your goals because we don't want to get to the end of the school year and have you say, but I wanted this kind of documentation. And then we say, oh, well, that comes when you report to us monthly. Yeah. You know? So we explain how to navigate our program and find where you're going to fit in how we do things. 
Um, we're available to you. We do not uh, uh, we do not limit our availability, so we don't have any limited you know hours of consultation. You can. There might be a time if you called every day that we would say, you know, <laughs> maybe we're yeah. not the program for you. You seem to need something yeah. else. Yeah. A little um, bit of distance. But we, but we will work with you for your questions. If a resource that you chose doesn't work, we'll suggest others. One of the things we do is compile what what works, uh, and then at the end of the of each semester, we'll help you document that. But what happens when the school authorities say, "Why isn't your kid going to a physical school?" So in that case, we'll do everything that we possibly can. We'll supply a, a ver- verification of enrollment to show them that you are enrolled with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll try to, th- I, you know, I've often worn a power suit into meetings to say, you know, <laughs> this student's A-OK, and on all the authority vested in me by my mother, <laughs> everything's good. And sometimes that even works. It sounds like you're doing, in, in part, what your mom did earlier, which is just standing up to school authorities and saying, this is legitimate. Right. Um, even if it sounds like in some of these countries you may not have the law on your side. Yes, that's exactly what we're doing. Okay. It's sort of the same thing. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> um, I have this uh, promotional brochure from Clonlara, and it says in your 2016-2017 year, you had 38 students here on campus. You had 44 doing your online program, which is sort of like um, a curriculum delivered. Yes. Yep. And you have a total of 916 people in the off-campus program, which used to be called home-based education. So that is really your bread and butter. It is. Right? It is. Do you see that continuing down the line? Yes. Definitely I see that continuing, but we are investing more and more into the campus program because if the... If the only way that we can sort of get this sort of approval and authority we seek in these other countries is to start schools there, um, then we need a robust campus program. We need to be able to replicate what we do here on, you know, on Ann Arbor's campus in these other countries. And that led us to looking at how, do we, how would we train that? especially from afar. If Pat Montgomery herself isn't going to be working with these teachers directly, um, if almost nobody from the American program is going to move there and do that, how do we find the people we need? What kind of people do we need? And and how do we deliver that training? We've done it here for 50 years, um, but we never codified that, if you will. We never said, here's the training book. Here's the kind of person who can teach well at an alternative school, and here's how we train them to do it. Here's what they have to do every day. Mm-hmm. So you've got to get the kind of person you need, and you've got to tell them what to do every day. Mm-hmm. And so we've actually been working on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't just see the off-campus program, formerly home-based program, or the campus being our bread and butter, but I see training people to do what we do mm-hmm. as, as the next big vision. So here's a question for both of you. Who do you see at this moment as your, your allies in the movement that you have helped to start? I know that the National Coalition for Alternative Community Schools is no more. Um, it, it is not. As an organization, it uh, turned in its papers in uh, April 2014. So, but there are other organizations. ARO, the Alternative Education Resource Organization, um, convenes people annually. 
uh, who are very much in the same camp that we are. Other, um, other schools of this kind, some of them in the public domain, um, a few, uh, like the Lehman School in Ithaca, New York, is very much in our camp, Dave Lehman. Uh, it used to be called Alternative uh, Community High School, Ox, A-C-H-S, and they renamed it for David Lehman, who founded it. Um, and he's a, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, Jerry Mintz, who runs um, Aero. There are individual pods of people in Colorado, New Mexico, California, uh, Oregon, New York, Virginia, who were members, active members of the National Coalition, who are still doing what they've been doing. Um, and they're very much in our camp, they're allies. Um, there are a lot of customary um, conventional institutions, like those Houghton Mifflin, they no longer exist, but the uh, ones who took over from them, the publishers and so on, who understand now that there's a market there for them and that, that that's okay. The Department of Education in Washington, D.C. has a whole um, private school division that welcomes. They enrolled me from the National Coalition to be an advisor to the Department of Education for years until it went defunct. And so they're very much in the camp because they see this as some always did. Uh, university professors often are in this, in this, are allies. They see this as part of what people do and part of the history, um, like John Gatto famously reports, from day one. And so they're very much in camp. What could we see happen in the world that uh, Clonlara would have played a part in that would make you really happy, Pat. Like, what could be a big change in the world of education that, uh, you know, if you saw this in a news headline, it would just make your day, your week, your year? What would really make my day is to see in the headlines Germany finally joins the 21st century, educationally speaking, and stops hiding behind a 400-year-old law, which they never paid any attention to until Hitler arrived on the scene and said, aha, children have to go to school. And so I have a ready-made palette for my youngsters, young Nazis, that's when children were absolutely required. Yes, the law was always there, but no, the Bavarian farmers did not send their children to school. Thank you very much, because they had other fish to fry, um, other bushes to, to plant and harvest. <laughs> so to speak. Uh, better, better analogy. So if that headline 
were to come out, that would be just, that would tickle me pink. So specifically homeschooling being legalized in Germany. In Germany, that's one thing, yeah. And if somehow Chandra's vision of having an equal footing, alternative education, have child-directed learning, whatever you want to call that, because it's there's no one word, there's no one term. I had a, 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 a staff member once, Steve Sandler. He was uh, at, uh, with the elementary and the preschoolers. He was one of our best teachers ever. And he was just a student at the University of Michigan himself, you know. He went on to Vanderbilt and became a child psychiatrist. When he had children of his own, he wanted to start a school. I think his wife really was going to be functioning and starting the school. And he called me on the phone from Pennsylvania, New York, and said, What is it that we did, Pat, at Clamaro? What would you call that? And I thought, No, sorry, there's no name. There's no one thing. It's child led, it's child centered, it's innovative, it's holistic. It's organic. It's all those things. But that doesn't say enough for people. That doesn't say it's Montessori. It's Steiner. And when people hear those terms, either one, they think, oh, I know what that is. No, they don't. They don't know what that is. Because this Montessori school is not a carbon copy of that one over there. But they think it is, you see. And so often people are looking for a word that will describe what it is that we do. There isn't one. It's Clonlara. Yes, that's it. It's Clonlara. And if that were to be appreciated and embraced and understood by those teachers who say, oh, nothing will change here. It's just the union. And it's just the same old, same old, and the testing, 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 and the teachers being assessed on the testing. Oh, jeez, Louise. Where did I hear the word child in there? Yeah, so nothing has changed. When I first started this, people said, don't start something like this. Don't go out on a limb. We need people like you in the system. You can change this. Well, don't look now, honey. But I've been doing this for 50 years, and that system hasn't changed one iota. I would have been banging my head against the wall of that system. I would have had so many concussions, there'd be nothing to think with. (laughs) And I think that was a great place to wrap this up. Pat, Chandra, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. This is fun.